0: What a wonderful song. How great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what our society should see from the church. How great the Lord is. And yet, that's not what society always sees. On May 22nd, a bombshell of sorts landed within American evangelicalism. Those who profess to believe the Bible is the word of God and who profess to be governed by it. If you read the news at all, you were probably aware of it. Guidepost Solutions issued a report that they had been commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention to prepare that was in many respects unbelievable. I'm sure some of you read the news. Some of you, like me, perhaps even read some of the report. The picture it painted is astonishing and heartbreaking. It's the largest evangelical Protestant denomination in America. And what was contained in that report showed decades of failures did examine the actions at the highest level of leadership within the Southern Baptist Convention. And in many respects, it was a damning analysis. And from an administrative standpoint, we're not Southern Baptists. They are. They'll have to deal with the impacts. Some of the men have already lost their jobs. Others will probably do so. But what was so horrifying to me wasn't just the actions of a few people at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. It was what was revealed in the report about what was going on in churches. In many respects, it mirrored a lengthy expose by the Houston Chronicle that was published in 2019, also dealing with Southern Baptist churches. And what it portrayed was shocking. Over decades, countless pastors at various levels and other church leaders engaged in the most wicked forms of sexual sin and immorality imaginable. There was the sexual abuse of children, pedophilia was cataloged, there was sexual abuse of teenagers. There was rampant sexual immorality with adults. The abuse at times involved heterosexual activity, it involved homosexual activity. Some of the behavior was criminal. There were many of the pastors listed who were convicted of crimes for which they are duly punished by the civil authorities. But sadly, there were many other pastors who just moved from place to place with new opportunities for their sexual immorality placed before them with each new congregation. These were not just a handful of cases. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of instances documented by pastors by men theoretically committed to leading God's flock. We can't say that that's just a problem in Southern Baptist churches because we read the news and we know it seems every week there's another scandal involving another pastor who's forced to resign because of sexual immorality. Just this week it was all over the news. A pastor stood up to resign and confess adultery and a woman stood up and said... Let's give the whole picture. I was 16 when you began this against me. The epidemic of sexual immorality in the culture at large is horrific. It doesn't speak well of our country or of modern society. But the sexual immorality rampant in churches, as documented by these reports, is astonishing. It's a grievous sin. It's not greatly praising the name of the Lord. It's dragging it through the mud. It scars and stains and devastates the individuals involved, but also the church at large. It's not surprising the secular world and media is having a field day. For many of them, it confirms what they've said all along. They don't really believe this stuff. It's just a power play. You evangelicals just want political power and conservative judges. You really don't care, and you really don't believe what you say you believe. And sadly, with sexual immorality documented on this scale, it's not possible for us to say, well, that was just a couple of bad apples. Don't underestimate the impact this could have on everyone who professes to name the name of Christ. I hope when you read about this or when you read about things like this, it gives you a righteous anger. What is documented there is evil and it is wrong. The victims looked at these men as examples of Jesus, and what they got instead was predators preying on the vulnerable. It is vile, and it's disgusting, and it's inexcusable. But sadly, human nature being what it is, we know that's the tip of the iceberg because what's exposed generally is just a little bit of the problem. Let me caution you when you read something like this not to quickly dismiss it as a problem others have, I fear for many of us, if we're not careful, we can look at this type of thing and we can have a reaction like the Pharisees had. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18. Verse 9, he says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. When we see episode after episode of sexual immorality happening in churches, it's too easy for us to say, well, thank God I'm not them. My fear is that the rampant sexual immorality that permeates our culture can permeate our lives. Now granted, I understand a lot of the people documented in those reports were never believers in the first place. They're people warned about in Scripture. The Apostle Paul said in Acts twenty twenty nine, talking to elders as he was leaving, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some of the people listed in that report were predators. He warned Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 6, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Again, predators that are looking for the mark. Paul accurately described them to Titus 1, 16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And for those who abuse children, I can't reconcile how they ever could be saved with the words of Jesus, Matthew eighteen five and 6. So when whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever calls one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That would be a better death than standing before a holy God, which is where they will be one day. So I get it. Unbelieving people are responsible for some of this. But lest we think, well, that's just unbelievers who are pretending, understand that a man of God can fall as well. When I read accounts of pastors engaging in sexual immorality, it scares me to death. Because I know that if King David, a man after God's own heart, is capable of adultery and murder, then so am I. I'm always fascinated by an account, a summary given of David's life, much of it good, in First Kings chapter 15. Verse 4 and 5. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded all the days of his life. It's a powerful testimony. Till you get to the next word, except, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. When he saw his wife and decided he wanted to satisfy his sexual desires with her. And then rather than be found out, he had Uriah murdered. And David didn't repent about it for months. My fear for me, my fear for any of us, is that one day we could be confronted... By the equivalent of Nathan saying to David in 2 Timothy 12, the beginning of verse 7, Nathan then said to David, you are the man. I don't want that to happen to me, and I don't want it to happen to you. It would break my heart to read about our church caught up in scandal because of sexual immorality running rampant. As I was looking at what I was going to preach next in my mind, I realized a couple of years ago, I did some series of messages from Colossians. And so I thought I would return to Colossians. And the last thing I taught in Colossians was verses 1 to 4. And I looked at verse 5, and it's dealing with this very issue, which is why that's where we're going this morning. Sexual immorality is a serious problem. Lest we say, I'm glad it's not me. We need to be on guard to root out this sin in our own life. I pray that these scandals don't just cause you to say, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people. But they cause you to look in the mirror and examine what's going on in your own life to make sure that you're following by the power of God's Spirit his will. This isn't a gray area in the Christian walk. 1 Thessalonians four three says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's what's in front of us in our study from the book of Colossians. You can turn to chapter 3. I read the entire section, but I'm going to be studying specifically just a few verses, verses 5 to 7, where Paul addresses very clearly this issue. He was writing to a church that was doing well. He wasn't familiar personally with this church, but their pastor Epaphras had come to him... And given him a report. And Paul was encouraged by their walking with faith. You can read that in chapter 1. But he also knew that some were trying to lead them astray. And he also knew because of the nature of the human heart. That some of them would struggle against the residual flesh that we have. So Paul was writing and he was encouraging them to live out the reality of their salvation. Again, in the verses immediately preceding our text this morning that I read earlier, he was saying that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ. Meaning at the moment of our salvation that occurred, but he's also going to go on to say that that should impact how we live. And the words here aren't just for leaders. They're for everyone. Everyone. my outline heading this morning is fighting a battle to the death, and that's not hyperbole. I'm going to read the verses we're studying, and then we'll jump into our study in full. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Our study is about fighting a battle to the death. And my first point is relatively straightforward from verse 5. You have no choice but to fight. You have no choice but to fight. Therefore, Therefore connects with everything that happened as far as us being alive with Christ. We're united with Christ. We are in Christ. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now I read and study from the New American Standard in this instance, while the translation is accurate, I don't believe it conveys as well as some other translations what Paul is actually saying. I think the ESV does a really good job. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. There's a lifelong battle we face of putting to death what is earthly in us, the residual flesh that we still have. He's really painting a contrast. Verse 3, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But he knows that in the practical living out of that reality, there's still some more dying to do of the flesh. We are a new creature in Christ, but we still inhabit these physical bodies. They still exert a hold on us. They shouldn't, and yet they do the Apostle Paul understood the struggle that we face. In Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 18, it's a familiar text to many of you, but Paul talked about his own struggle, and I think it aptly summarizes what he's trying to address in the area of sexual immorality in Colossians 3, 5. Romans 7, beginning at 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh... For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. There is a war going on whether you want it to or not and it's within these fleshly bodies. If you hate your sin and you've tried to overcome temptation and you failed, you can understand Paul's words. On the one hand, I hate it and I don't want anything to do with it. But the old sights and sounds and sensations whisper a song in our ears saying, Remember me? Why don't you come back for a visit? We had some good times together. Paul wants us to kill that behavior. Paul's words are emphatic. You must kill those fleshly desires that are waging war against you. You cannot give up. You cannot surrender. And there's never going to be a ceasefire. You will either kill the flesh or it will destroy your testimony. We have to fight. We don't have a choice. It may require radical action in your life to deal with this issue of sexual immorality. The type of radical action that Jesus talked about in figurative language in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Jesus wasn't, of course, literally saying, cut off these things or pluck out your eye, but he's talking about the actions that you take to protect yourself. For some of you, sexual immorality may have the upper hand and you have to fight, and you have to fight it to the death, and it may require radical action. perhaps because this is so dominant in our society as a believer, you have countless resources available to you. But God's already given you everything you need. You have His Spirit within you. You have His Word to guide you, to tell you right from wrong. Society every day is trying to contradict what God says about sexual immorality and if we're not careful, it can suck us in to think, well, that's not so bad. Don't believe the lie. You have God's Spirit. You have God's Word. You have the church. You have brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you and help you when you're weak. Avail yourselves of those things. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we are that man or that woman. I don't care if you've lost the fight, if you're discouraged, don't give up. In fact, even if you've lost before, even if the flesh seems too powerful, that's a lie. There's a promise from God's Word that makes it clear. Every time you face sexual temptation, you can prevail because God promises it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Let me encourage you. Start fighting. If you are fighting, prevail. But understand this is a fight to the Death. This isn't just to keep something in the corner. This is to kill it. And when we realize what we have to kill, the battle gets difficult. Fighting a battle to the death. First, you have no choice but to fight. Second, the enemy is within you. The enemy is within you. I want to carefully go through this. But Paul continues, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Paul is telling us what he wants us to put to death. What we have to kill. And he's talking about sexual sin and all the things that lead up to it. The picture he paints is not pretty, but it's clear, and there's progression. He starts with our conduct, but he also points where that conduct comes from. He lists five things specifically, let's go through them each. First, he says immorality. Put to death immorality. The word used here is pornea. Pornography is what we recognize. It refers to every type of sexual activity outside of marriage. Every type. God created male and female. God created the institution of marriage. And sexual relationship between a husband and a wife and a covenant of marriage is a gift from the Lord. It's not immoral. It's to be enjoyed. It's a gift from God. But any other type of sexual activity other than that is sin, period. Be it a secret relationship or a fantasy life or pornography or sexual activity before marriage. It all fits under this umbrella again, the Word of God is clear. I read it before i 'll read it again first thessalonians four three for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Several commentators noted that when Paul also listed the deeds of the flesh in galatians five nineteen the very first thing he mentioned was immorality. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, both in our text today, sensuality related. Sexual sin is offensive to God. It weaves its way into our lives and takes root. And if we're not careful... It flourishes. So Paul's saying, put to death immorality, any type of sexual sin. And God defines that as anything other than a husband and wife in a covenant marriage. He next says, impurity. Also one of the deeds of the flesh. This is of moral uncleanness. Unclean thoughts and imaginations. He then lists passions, which is the sexual urgings that well up within us that result in many impure thoughts. That longing for illicit sexual satisfaction in some way other than what God ordained. He then mentions evil desire. The word translated desire in and of itself is neutral, but Paul adds in the word evil to make clear that he's talking about, again, this illicit sexual desire. It's an inordinate craving. It wants what God says you can't have in sexual satisfaction. You can see how all these are related and they seem to fit together, which is why each one has to be killed. And when he comes to the fifth item, greed, he says, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The word greed is also translated properly, covetousness. It's a great term for the sexual ethic of our current society, which is, I want more, I want more, I want more. It's a insatiable appetite for sinful sexual activity. It's interesting because covetousness is prohibited in the 10th commandment, including coveting someone else's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything else. More than one commentator said greed's idolatry because greed, that covetousness, that illicit longing of our hearts, Decides that what I want is more important than God. We're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's the first and greatest commandment, but we decide in the moment, I think today I'm going to love myself. I know God said no, but I think just this once. Well, I, I know God says this is a sin, but it's not really a sin, is it? Well, I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just imagining stuff in my mind. Well, pornography, it's nothing big deal, even though it's stirring up all these passions and desires. I want it more than I want to please the Lord. If we put all this together, we can see the evil way in which all this works and why Paul says that each step in the process, has to be killed. Starts with that greed, that covetousness. Well, God said no, but I need to be about me today. How many times has somebody in this society said, well, I have to love myself first. And my wanting it, my greed, my covetousness feeds that evil desire that says, hey... And then it stirs up that passion that says, well, there's got to be an outlet for this. And then the unclean and the impure thoughts permeate us such that stepping into actual immorality is a short walk. And because of the way our twisted hearts and minds deceive us, some think, well, I stopped short of actually doing something and Jesus says, it's too late. Matthew five, twenty-seven and 28. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the common feature in all of this. And it's why the battle is so hard. The enemy is on the inside. Now, I get it. Satan wants to destroy us. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I get it. But Satan can lay any enticement, any trap he wants. And if we're walking by the Spirit, we can resist. If you fall into sexual sin, it's not because Satan overpowered you. It's not because this evil world system that Satan controls, prevented you too much information, too much temptation. It's not my fault. I was overwhelmed. The reason you succumb is because you did not kill those desires before they took hold. All sin, including sexual sin, doesn't begin out there. It begins in our own hearts. Don't take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. Mark chapter 7 verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Satan or this world system may place an enticement in front of you, but unless your heart's desiring to sin, the enticement is not enough to make you fall. And please don't deceive yourself by thinking, well, God's placed me in these circumstances. He didn't give me a wife, or he gave me a bad husband, or this, or this. It's God's fault. James addressed that very thinking. Chapter 1 verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone, meaning he doesn't give anyone that inner desire to sin. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James is describing the same process. It starts with that desire that is a wrong desire that grows and grows and it plays out and you don't kill it, you don't stop it, you don't replace it with the Word of God. In fact, you entertain it. You like the feeling. It's not that bad, is it? If you don't kill them, desires become out of control. And when we feed them and we give them more fuel, when we've sinned, it has its consequences. You have to fight the battle against sexual immorality, but you've got to realize that the battle isn't all out there, it's inside. You've got to fill your hearts and minds with God's Word, with His truth. If you feed the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, there is an inevitable outcome. I've read a quote from a commentator that I don't normally endorse because he has some other theological views, but on this point, I think he nailed it. He says, To put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed if you feed the flesh don't be surprised where it leads you well know, well it was just a swimsuit well well it was just lingerie that i was looking at but well it was just some regular nudity in a movie it wasn't pornography well well it wasn't really bad pornography it was Stop it. Stop lying to yourself. You already know better. Don't deceive yourself. You have no choice but to fight. And the battle begins with you. Fighting a battle to the death. You have no choice but to fight. The enemy is within you. And the third point. Is this don't underestimate god's hatred of sin, don't underestimate god's hatred of sin. Paul explains why we're supposed to put all these things to death in verse six, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. now of course, all sins fall short of the glory of God, James in two ten says for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on one point, he has become guilty of all. But don't miss what Paul is saying. There is a unique and special hatred of God against sin, against sexual sin, such that for those who don't turn to Jesus Christ, God's wrath will be poured out because of this immorality. We're supposed to realize that God hates this so much that we want nothing to do with things that God hates. For time's sake, I won't read it all, but I would encourage you to go back and read a familiar passage from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Because Paul talks about God's attitude towards the human heart. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is nothing to be toyed with. Skipping down to verse 22, Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Brothers and sisters, that's how God views sexual immorality. Do we want to be identified as those who have depraved minds? God's wrath reflects His holy hatred of this sin. And Paul's telling us to reflect on that. We should kill all these things because God's wrath is going to be poured out on them for those who don't know Christ. The Bible makes it clear. Paul's writings make it clear. Sexual immorality and Christianity can't peacefully coexist. If you think you can live a Christian life pleasing to God and yet indulge in sexual immorality either outwardly or in the recesses of your mind and heart, you are deceived. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We can't trifle with things that God hates. God's wrath is His holy anger unleashed, not in some irrational temper tantrum, but in a just and righteous pouring out of judgment upon sin. It's embarrassing how casually we can view any sin, but particularly sexual immorality yet the Bible makes it clear there is nothing hidden from Him. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And we need to understand how God views these things. Apart from Jesus Christ, those who engage in these things one day will feel Terror. Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, I, I just looked a little. Well, no harm if I look, but I don't touch. Well, well, it's just a little fantasy. Better to fantasize than actually to do something bad, right? Well, I, I'm just reflecting on some things from the past. It's not a big deal. That's just a little flirtation, even though it gives me a tingle inside. I'm just flirting. There's nothing to worry about. Well, Well, yeah, we're having lunch together. And yes, that was somebody I dated before I was married. But it's just a friendship now. Even though I'm really looking forward to it. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Please don't underestimate God's hatred of sexual immorality. Don't allow yourself to think, well, it's not that big of a deal. If it brings down God's wrath, It's a very big deal indeed. For some of you, if you're living a life of unbroken sexual sin and you're not even fighting, you have to examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith. Ephesians 5, 5, again, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If that's all you know, then you need to repent today and cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I trust most of you are genuinely saved and that you're at least trying to fight. Perhaps some very well. Perhaps some very badly. I think at times, because God does not instantly do what He did in Ananias and Sapphira, we think we're getting a pass with something. But understand, the Bible makes clear God's hand of discipline will bear down on His children. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you're reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Please don't underestimate God's hatred for this sin. Brings us to our final point, fighting a battle to the death. You have no choice but to fight. The enemy is within you. Don't underestimate God's hatred of sin. And fourth and finally, your salvation makes victory possible. Your salvation makes victory possible. Everything I've said so far is weighty. I don't like preaching this any more than you necessarily like hearing it because I'm preaching to myself first and foremost. I know how hard this battle is. I've been fighting it. For almost 30 years since I first came to faith, it's not a fun. It's not a joy. It is relentless, it never stops. It is a fight we face every day. I've shared in some context before, I remember being a younger believer at a church in Fresno, California, in a men's group. And this man that he had to be in his 80s was standing up and he was talking about his struggle with sexual temptation. And I thought, are you kidding me? Does this never go away? And no, it doesn't. If we have life and breath, it's there. But can I close by giving you hope? We have hope. We can defeat this enemy. The Bible is not calling us to do something which is impossible. God has given us every tool we need, beginning with removing us from our former way of life. Paul says this in verse 7. Talking about all those things that we have to put to death, for which God's wrath is coming, he says, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul's reiterating the truth that our current state isn't our former state. As unbelievers, when we were faced with these temptations, we didn't have the ability to overcome it. We were truly slaves to sin, to the desires of the flesh. That was the pattern of our lives. Not anymore. Paul's saying you once walked in them, you once lived in them, But that's not who we are anymore. Our lives are with Christ. I said the battle is a lifelong struggle and it is and yet we can have daily victory. This is serious sin for which Christ died. We have to fight against it but we have to remember that we have hope because God has saved us. being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In the midst of this struggle against the flesh that we hate, don't forget that God set His love upon you. When you're fighting the struggle against sexual sin, you feel like a miserable sinner. You are. I am too. I don't doubt you struggle with sexual temptation. I do too. But God has given us everything we need to prevail because God saved us out of that. We're not resigned to it. We don't have to live in it. God gave us His Spirit to dwell within us, to remind us of the Word of God. Several verses I won't read, but John 14, 26. The Spirit reminds us of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Again, I won't read it, but God's given us everything we need in His Word to equip us for every good work. We can overcome this temptation. 2 Peter 1, 3. God has already given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We can defeat this temptation. I come back to the promise of His Word. I didn't grow up with a wanna memorizing tons of verses, but as a new believer, I memorized this scripture. I've already read it once. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Please listen carefully to the promise that God has given you because it guarantees that we can do what Paul is telling us to do and put to death this pernicious sin. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. If you're struggling and you're hearing me say fight harder, understand you're not alone. Others struggle. And God promises that you don't ever have to succumb that in any moment of temptation, of any sin, but including sexual immorality, there is a way of escape, you have to look for it and take it. It could be cutting off social media contact with someone. It could be cutting off a relationship. It could be changing where you work. It could be changing what you watch and what you read and what you listen to. It could be getting rid of your computer or your smartphone. God will provide the way of escape. Look for it and take it. I want us all to win this battle. But I also want us to realize we've got to fight to the very end. As long as you're breathing, keep fighting. There's a very sad commentary on the life of a man who was given... Supernatural wisdom by God. The smartest man apart from Christ who ever lived was Solomon. God gave him wisdom. God used him to write scripture, including scripture about sexual purity. But his life is a tragic tale of what happens if we don't put to death the desires of the flesh. 1 Kings 11 1 to 4 has this sad commentary. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them nor shall they associate with you for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wife turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. I'm pleading with each one of us, even as I'm preaching myself, don't let that be the sad commentary on our lives because we didn't fight this battle. Don't let the epidemic of sexual immorality infiltrate us. And if it's already arrived, kill it. May Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18-20 be the sincere prayer of each one of our hearts. Flee immorality... Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would apply your word to each one of our hearts. Lord, we should be salt and light and a powerful testimony of holiness to a lost and dying world and far too often the members of your church have joined with society in rampant sexual immorality. Lord, convict each one of us today. Help us see clearly the battle in front of us. And Lord, remind us of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, You love us. You want us to succeed. You call us to obey and You give us the tools because of Your love for us so that we can obey. Help us avail ourselves of what You've provided. And Lord, if anyone today has become convinced because you open their eyes that they are lost before you, I pray that they would understand that despite how much you hate sin, you sent Jesus to die in the place of sinners. The wrath of God fell on Him for all those who would ever believe. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, may your word about sexual purity dwell within us richly so that we would glorify you with our bodies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.